Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health. I'm Elizabeth Cullen. And I'm Georgia Fong. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. Welcome to our first podcast for 2021. Today we're going to talk about the symptoms associated with menopause. Today we would like to pass on the message of instead of seeing menopause as a deficiency disease, we see this time as a conscious transition of opportunity for change. Unfortunately, we see limited research into menopause and menopausal symptoms as each woman is individual and her life experiences affect the severity and frequency of her symptoms. This lack of comprehensive understanding of women's symptoms associated with estrogen loss, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, and the number two killer of women in dementia. Oh, of women is dementia, sorry. We need to begin to understand the relationship between endogenous and exogenous exposure to estrogen and possible health risks that may lead to more effective prevention and management of these symptoms that may arise. It is important that we raise awareness for the research that has been done with menopause in the past, including the 2002 Women's Health Initiative. This is important to raise with your GP and making sure that you see a GP that supports you through your stages of menopause and perimenopause. So today we're going to focus on natural menopause. So we do see a difference in the definition of natural menopause and surgical menopause. So Liz, can you please define the difference between these two for us? Sure. So natural menopause is the last menstrual period in a, a woman has experienced who has not had a hysterectomy. This is diagnosed after 12 months of amenorrhea, so 12 months without experiencing a period. In contrast, the definition of surgical menopause refers to menopause induced by the removal of both ovaries or and or uterus before a natural menopause. You may find this, this is earlier on in life and you are supported with HRT therapy. So today we'll focus more so on natural menopause. But I guess one place where we'd like to start is, especially in clinic, we see a confusion between natural menopause and the difference between perimenopause menopause and postmenopause. Yes. So should we start with the five stages of perimenopause? Yes. Yes. So premenopausal is a time where a female is experiencing regular menses. So that may be a 21 to 35 day cycle. A female then may start to notice that they become late perimenopausal, which then begins, you'll begin to see one change in the cycle of length for at least seven days. This is why it's so important that we track our cycles so that we can start to notice these subtle changes. Early menopause transition then begins when we see at least two cycles with cycle length changes of at least seven days. A late transition is then seen as a greater than or equal to three months with no period. But a female will not be defined as being going through menopause until they are experiencing 12 months or one year with no period. 
This can become really confusing, especially if you are not tracking your cycle or if you're going back to the GP and your bloods are showing that the hormones are fluctuating. This makes complete sense due to estrogen from the ovaries still fluctuating when you are still ovulating, even if there is a three-month period between this. So you'll also notice that the male androgen hormones, they'll be doing their own agenda. So they'll be going up and down and you'll start to still experience these once estrogen really has become depleted. Now, the issue here is, is this is where we start to notice those symptoms. So rather than having a regular cycle where we start to notice premenstrual tension and we know, oh, okay, the second half of my cycle, this is when I'm going to notice those symptoms such as insomnia, anxiety, and premenstrual tension such as breast tenderness but you'll also start to notice that this may start to vary throughout your cycle throughout the whole month or over three months yeah yeah so I guess that's where we come in to play that role so before we start to talk about Chinese medicine should we start to talk about some lifestyle advice yeah yeah and should we talk about the different symptoms that come up for women because each woman is individualized and some symptoms some women might experience and others they might not. Yes, definitely. And then there is the lucky 10% who experience no symptoms. Yeah. So the transition is non-episode, but let's talk about the 90% of women who do experience those symptoms because at the end of the day, a third of your life as a female is experienced as being postmenopausal. Yes. Yeah. So if we talk about those symptoms that may arise, so we see changes in mood, which you spoke about, yes, fatigue and lethargy, but one of the most common symptoms that we see is hot flashes. Yes. Yeah. Um, heart palpitations, dizziness and vertigo. Women can experience headaches, unstable blood pressure, and we'll go into um, vaginal dryness um, and also reproductive health from that perspective as well. Yes irregularities in menstrual cycles which you spoke about and that can be seen with prolonged bleeding scanty menses or even missed periods periods yes definitely so when we talk about those lifestyle factors and those symptoms that may arise women can't control aging however they can control the lifestyle factors to reduce the severity and the intensity of these symptoms definitely and i guess if we see that from the chinese medicine perspective too with the seven-year cycle Yes. So we know that the seven-year cycle of coming up to menopause is 42 to 49 and then 49 to 56. So that it's so important that the lifestyle changes that we start to talk about today are really implemented earlier than when we think about perimenopause and menopause. So perimenopause can last for seven years before actually going into menopause. So it's really critical that there's a reflection being made at 40 of thinking what the next decade or next two decades is going to bring. And I think even before that, women can begin to focus on their lifestyle factors to ensure that their bodies at an optimal level to reduce that inflammation and reduce that excess estrogen to then reduce the risk of these symptoms that may arise definitely and and if we can see menopause as a conscious change or conscious transition just like puberty menstrual cycle pregnancy and lactation then we're really shifting the mindset there of thinking okay I'm going to look after myself throughout my entire life so that each one of these transitions can come from a place of opportunity for change rather than struggling with symptoms yes absolutely yeah so I think we should talk about the importance of gut health weight management sleep and stress reduction Fantastic. and the lifestyle factors that we can incorporate into women's lives to help support these 
different factors. Definitely. Should we start with gut health? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, Liz, if we think of an unhappy gut with high inflammation levels, this can directly affect women's hormone levels, right? So, during menopause, poor gut health is linked to further loss of estrogen and can exacerbate menopausal symptoms like inability to sleep and worsen those hot flushes. So poor, poor gut health can also reduce serotonin, which affects women's moods, and boosting gut microbiome during the transition is crucial for physical and mental health. So what lifestyle factors can we implement to support a woman during this, this stage? This, this stage. Phase? So I guess um, if we can shift our mindset with food and see food as medicine, so from a Chinese dietary therapy perspective, um, eating the colours of the rainbow, so probiotic-rich foods, so supporting your gut health and microbiome, avoiding high-processed and high-sugary foods, as well as fried foods because we can see that from that thermal property with heating foods yes. as well, yeah. including the inflammation. Would you say spicy foods as well? Spicy foods, yes. Yeah. yeah. So chilli, um, too much of the um, spicy paprika. Oh, yeah. It's oh. a bit too much depending on the, the, the depending on the person who's experiencing the flushes. Yeah. Yeah. What else would you say? I say cayenne pepper too. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> another one, the sneaky one. <laughs> because people love chilli so much. So it's one of those ones you're like, okay, so can I have this? Well, let's just back it off for a little while. It's not forever. Yeah. Um, and then so the importance of bowel regulation as well. So I guess we'll talk to you about vaginal health later on with prolapse, but that's also a place to think about bowels as well yeah. and bowel regulation post babies. And if that hasn't been regular, then that's something to consider too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess if we were to talk about food, then in turn, let's talk about weight management. Yes. So when we talk about high insulin levels, how can that affect estrogen levels, Georgia? So that can increase estrogen levels, which then have an impact on the thickness of the uterine lining and therefore increases the risk of endometrial cancer and breast cancer. Okay. So that's so important, as we know, to and reduce those estrogen and insulin levels 100%. Yeah, definitely. And I guess from that weight management perspective as well, is when we talk about muscle muscle mass or muscular mass and bone density of thinking, you know, coming into that stage where there is least, least less estrogen, yes. um, that we're going to have a risk for a decrease in bone density as well. So this is a really good time and a motivator for weight management. So we're bringing yep. in movement. Yeah. yeah, and focusing on weight-bearing exercise, that's really important as well. Definitely, and making that time for you as yes. well because yeah. I guess you know late 40s is an age where you know it's starting to try and schedule that time so that it is seen as self-care but it's also movement so that it's supporting you through this next transition yeah and once you start it makes you feel so good oh, so good so good and as a community base as well you know whether you like to do that as time by yourself and having that downtime or you know checking in and seeing your friends and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah definitely so um, when we start to talk about low GI foods as well, so, again, directly linked to the insulin levels, but, again, you will feel better. So yes. from a fatigue side of things as well as for sleep management, if you're making sure that you're avoiding sugary sweet treats yep. and, um, say, for example, sugar in drinks and you're going yep. for more low GI foods, you are going to support not only your insulin levels, weight management, but also for sleep. Yeah. Which yeah. Is tick, tick, tick. Yeah. And if we talk about sneaky sugar, should we start to talk about alcohol? Yes, I yeah. think that's really important. Yeah. So, Liz, research shows that women are more at risk of the alcohol's toxic effects mm. and that women are more likely to develop alcohol-related diseases sooner than men because women metabolise alcohol differently. 
Okay. So this is really important, and especially for perimenopausal women. There is a large UK study, including over 28,000 women, estimated that breast cancer risk begins with even low moderate levels of alcohol. So with every 10 grams of alcohol, so that's one standard drink, mm -hmm. consumed per day increases the risk of breast cancer by 12%. Wow, okay. Yep. So contrast to this, a woman's overall lifetime risk of breast cancer, which is almost 9% if she drinks no alcohol. Okay, so it's considered the difference. Yeah. yeah. So this research also suggests that women who have three alcoholic drinks per week have 15% higher risk of breast cancer, and this increases exponentially with additional alcohol consumption because alcohol increases estrogen. Okay. So it keeps coming back to that excess of estrogen. Yeah, okay. So any estrogen-dominant hormonal functions are impacted by alcohol, including PCOS, fibroids, endometriosis and hormonoreceptive breast cancer. Okay, so we know that females are prone to fibroids post-babies but also coming into their 40s and perimenopause yes. So and heavier periods. So if we're fueling a heavier period through inflammation, through having alcohol, again, yeah. it's that connection there, that motivator of dropping down, decreasing intake of alcohol. Yes. Because it is directly linked to menstrual cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So researchers have also found that alcohol diminishes the effects of estrogen-blocking drugs, um, which are used to treat many breast cancers. So, so that's a really important factor as well yeah, to take definitely. into consideration too. Definitely. And on top of that, you know, alcohol consumption can increase hot flushes as well. So it's all linked. It's all linked. And I guess it is... Again, remembering that if your alcohol is coming from an intake that is conscious or yeah. you're slowing down the drinking and you're scheduling down time and creating new purposes in your life of maybe activities that don't include alcohol, is that you are going to support the next stage of your life of coming into perimenopause and menopause. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, helping mental health, helping sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I guess those resources that we were speaking about too of the yeah. alcohol experiment and Sober Curious are wonderful books to check out so that you can have a look at, you know, reflecting on your relationship with alcohol and how to make that a little bit more conservative. Yeah, and sort of setting limits and assessing so social situations and catching up with friends for a walk or a coffee rather yeah. than going out for a drink. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, Liz, should we check in with the importance of sleep? Yes. <laughs> so um, the importance of sleep, we know this for everyone, but particularly for women who are going through perimenopause and menopause, and especially at a time where the body usually is interrupted with sleep due to an imbalance in hormones. Uh, deep quality sleep is when most of our healing functions in the body occur. Our muscles are relaxed, our heart rate drops, and our breathing becomes slow and steady. So this does allow our cardiovascular system time to repair and rest, support blood flow to the muscles and tissue for growth and repair, as well as our immune system as we produce more antibodies and hormones, which support growth and to balance our appetite. So this lack of sleep can have a severe negative impact on a physical and mental well-being as well as hormone metabolism. So when we think of melatonin, the hormone that increases at night to prepare the, prepare the body for sleep, makes me tired. Like wanting, wanting to go and have a nice sleep. Yeah. Um, it helps. Our sleep best friend. Yeah. Melatonin. Yeah. It helps regulate estrogen. 
and re reduces the risk of developing estrogen estrogen driven breast cancer by reducing cancer cell growth. So those changes in estrogen during perimenopause and menopause therefore impact sleep and mood. So as we now know that insomnia and sleep disorders adversely affect all aspects of health. Therefore, these hormonal changes can therefore worsen symptoms of menopause. So rather than supporting yourself through menopause, if you are lacking sleep due to not creating priority for getting those eight hours or maybe it's interrupted through your drinking habits, and this is something that really needs to change. So um, prioritizing sleep is integral and seeking assistance for insomnia and primary sleep disorders before perimenopause starts. So once you start to notice that your sleep patterns are being changed and that is not due to external stimulation, yeah. then that's your first flag of hang on maybe I am starting to go through perimenopause and maybe I need to start to learn different management techniques. So I guess other than seeing a practitioner and we'll go into how acupuncture supports sleep, yeah, Georgia, what would be some other ways that you can manage your sleep patterns? So we talk about healthy sleep hygiene habits in the clinic. Yes, so important. <laughs> so there are a variety of tools and tricks that can help some women and some don't. Some don't, exactly. Yeah, and everyone's different and at different stages in your life or whatever you're doing the next day, some of them work and some don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's why we have so many of them. Yes. So <laughs> here's the list. <laughs> So if you are having tr trouble sleeping, we recommend to try to stay away from a nap in the yeah. day because that's going to negatively affect your sleep and exacerbate that negative sleep cycle. Mm. Sticking to a routine and getting the, the right light at night. So, you know, having a nice soft light in the evening, yeah. staying away from screens. So that includes the phone, the TV and the laptop or the iPad. And I heard an interesting one the other day of changing your light bulb in the bathroom. Oh, that's to, a good one. To the yellow warm light rather than the blue light or just a soft lamp. Yeah, that's a great yeah, idea. Because you know how if you go to the bathroom in the night, especially through perimenopause, more frequent urination then if you're stimulated by that light as well then you're going to just expose yourself again yeah, yeah. and we talk about the importance of having a warm shower just before bed yeah. and you know being in the bathroom to wind down yeah if you're in that lighting then that's gonna stimulate you yeah. again yeah i thought that was interesting um, interesting. And then caffeine as well. No caffeine yeah. after 12. And no stimulants. So no sugar after 12 as well is yeah. a big one. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about the heat side of things as well is mm. making sure you're having warm coffee. Yes. You know, and that's yeah. another reason to motivate you to cut down on your caffeine intake. So, yeah. yeah. And then when getting into bed, making sure you're nice and cool. Yes. And I'm getting comfortable. A little bit of lavender oil. Yes, that's magnesium always nice. Yes, yeah. Even taking some magnesium just before bed is always nice yeah, as well. Definitely. And making sure you're doing a little bit of exercise throughout the day. It's a good way to get some movement in in some form. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And making sure it's not three hours before bed. Yes, because that's going to stimulate you stimulate as well you and heighten the central nervous system, which is yes. not what we want. No, we want to slow and we calm down the yes. central nervous system. Say, for example, with meditation. Yeah, or maybe some yin yoga. Oh, yes, some nice yes. gentle movement. Yes, <laughs> or um, a yoga nidra. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which are all accessible for free on, say, for example, Inside Timer. Yeah. We've got the Calm app. Yeah, or even through yeah. YouTube. Oh, yeah, through YouTube now as well. Yeah. 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 So then coming down, when we talk about the importance of stress reduction, mm -hmm. Liz, it's a little bit like the chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. So stress impacts female reproductive hormones and female reproductive hormones impact stress. So the importance of lifestyle factors and self-care are really important here. Definitely, especially if you have been guided by your hormones previously and thought, okay, I'm in my luteal phase, 
I know I need more self-care with premenstrual tension. And you're learning about this new body of mm. working out, okay, where are my hormones? They're all over the shop. So what's in your toolkit to manage this? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we spoke a little bit about that. You've got the meditation, yeah. the yoga nidra. Magnesium spray. Magnesium spray. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Less caffeine. Less caffeine. Yeah. Yes. So... Eating a good diet. Eating a good diet and getting control and being proactive. Yes. So, again, those first symptoms that you're starting to notice of perimenopause so that you can have the guidance there of feeling supported and navigating through this stage that really is unknown previously to you is educating yourself. So the two resources of many that are available that we recommend are The Feel Good Guide to Menopause by Dr Nicola Gate and the M word by Ginny Mansberg. So other than that is, you know, learning about yourself from another side of if maybe learning about your brain's patterns as well. And this is a great time to see a psychologist if needed, especially when you are in your 40s and 50s. It is a bit of tug of war that you may be in the middle with generations in your family. So you're still looking after your parents or in-laws and or you may be looking after the kids that have grown up but are in those teenage years. So it is a time of adapting and making that conscious transition through being supported. So you don't have to be alone doing this. You can educate yourself through podcasts, but you've also got health practitioners around and making sure you're getting a GP who listens to you and is going to support you through this time. Yes. I think as well, having that strong support network around you. So important. Yeah. So important. It's really important. And finding people with common interests. So that might change. Yeah. So, you know, you may have just come out of full-time motherhood. Yeah. So it might be finding what are my joys and what are my new purposes. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that is that you like gardening or it might be that you like going for a bushwalk. Or Or joining a book club. (laughs) A book club. (laughs) Great. Um, So just learning and and being open to finding new joys and purposes at this stage of your life. Yeah. Yeah. So, Liz, on that note, should we talk about the role of Chinese medicine medicine in the management of menopausal symptoms? Let's do that because we know how significant a role TCM plays for women coming into the wise women stage. Yes. So should we start to talk about, from a Chinese medicine perspective, what organs are involved? Yeah. So... From a Chinese medicine perspective, menopause is a natural change in energy. Mm -hmm. So the reproductive organs work together with the liver, spleen and kidneys in the pelvic region. So in Chinese medicine, menopause is caused by yin deficiency, leading to flare of yang energy, which is warm in nature, so not true heat. Mm -hmm. So acupuncture helps rebalance the flow of qi, blood, and jin ye, which is the fluids. The fluids. Okay. And then I guess when we start to talk about the role of the shen. Yeah. And the kidneys and specifically. The kidneys specifically and the heart. Yeah. Of the symptoms that come from this yin deficiency can then affect the shen, which is the spirit, which is housed in the heart, which then can lead to the unknown anxiety or the mood changes as well, as well as from the kidneys, which is viewed as the root of life's activities. And as weakness can easily lead to disturbances in supporting and promoting the other organ systems. So this can result in the imbalance of yin and yang elements in the body. And this is why apart from changes in the menstrual pattern, a wide range of symptoms are seen during this time of menopause. So this is where, depending on what organs are being affected, and this is where being guided by a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner 
and then learning what the extent of the external stimulation is, how it's affecting your symptoms. So that's where this lifestyle advice comes in as well. Yeah. So where's our role, Georgia, as acupuncturists and what research have we got? So if we think of specifically, say, hot flushes. Yes. So if we look at the studies that have been done on acupuncture in the treatment of hot flushes, there is a study done in Norway, which was a 12-week study, found that women who received acupuncture experienced a decline in both number and intensity of hot flushes per day. So if we come down, there was also a 2016 study of more than 200 women experiencing a minimum of four hot flushes per night with either six or 12 months of treatment. So they found that maximum benefit occurred after about eight treatments. It is worth noting that frequency of night sweats decreased by 30%, meaning that on average women experienced one and a bit fewer events each night. So when we talk about acupuncture and the frequency of treatment, Acupuncture is accumulative. So the more frequently you come, the quicker you begin to feel and see the benefits within yourself. And that's with you doing the lifestyle. Outside of the clinic, yeah. So clinical reality is that you will start to notice a decrease of frequency and intensity with hot flushes and night sweats, although it doesn't happen overnight. So even if you're using acupuncture as well as the Chinese herbal medicine, you need to be patient and it's not something that will change after one treatment, but you may start to notice a change after four to five, but you really won't see a clinical outcome till over eight weeks of treatment. So depending on the practitioner you see, it may be once a week, but other practitioners might be twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for women that are uh, before perimenopausal, so when we speak about that pre-menopausal, pre, yeah, pre-menopausal, perimenopausal, perimenopausal, yeah. to start to change your lifestyle factors now to decrease the likelihood of the severity of these symptoms that come up. Because it's also important to know with smoking. Yeah, that's a big factor. That's a big well. factor. So you know, we know that smoking has that vasal vagal response. <laughs> Has the has a vasovagal response of hot flushes and aggravating night sweats as well. And fun fact that you usually do go through menopause one to two years earlier if you are a smoker. So I guess it's one of those things of how are you contributing more heat to your body Mm. from that Chinese medicine perspective, and how can you help yourself by decreasing that as well? But from a Chinese herbal medicine perspective. It's not the same herbal formula for everyone. It's more so of where is your deficiency and, you know, are you more yin deficient or is there more dampness there? So from a weight management perspective and insulin, do we need to manage that as well? So that's where treatment needs to be tailored for the individual as well as the Chinese dietary therapy. And using acupuncture is not only going to help the hot flushes and night sweats, but also the other symptoms such as sleep. Yes. So if you're finding that you are do experience insomnia, then where is that underlining pattern? Yeah. As well as with the anxiety as well. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. and it's also taking that time out for yourself for self care, yes. which yes. is really important. You are scheduling the downtime for yourself and creating that time of worth so that you can have the time to really rejuvenate and restore. Yes. Yes. Sounds, so yes. So should we make that emphasis of? Night, night sweats, hot flushes, they may not completely disappear with your acupuncture. It's more so that they will reduce 
yeah. in frequency and intensity. So making them a little bit more bearable and making sure that you've got your management skills when they do come in. So another fun little tip is the facial spray. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, for... Hot flushes throughout the day. Throughout the day. So if you keep that in your handbag, that's something that, say, for example, if it's got rose water in it or aloe vera, and that's going to be nice and cooling for your skin. And and it's a management as well so that you're not feeling anxious when you're noticing this flush come up. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get my spray. Yeah. Do a little quick little spray that feels refreshing and then you've got your management skills yeah. Um, it's really important as well that blood tests are done. So again, having that relationship with your GP so that we're checking what is going on with other well, your hormones, but additional to that is vitamin D, making yeah. sure we're checking your cholesterol levels as well because we know the cardiovascular risk. 100%. And, and, thyroid, and thyroid function thyroid is function. really important and getting those all the right tests done for thyroid yes. function. And you Definitely. said bone density. And That's bone really density important. as well. And checking when your mum went through menopause. Yes. Because yeah. that also that also really helps to know there is somewhat of a reflection with research that shows us when your mother went through menopause that you may go through, depending if you've been on HRT or depending if you've got the marina or the, you've been on the pill or if your mother had a hysterectomy or if you have. But that is something just to be mindful of as well of checking in with your mother and if you can and to see when she went through menopause as well. Yep. Before we finish, should we just have a quick note about vaginal dryness? Yes. Definitely. So I think this is really important that we do speak about vaginal dryness as only 7% of women get any treatment. The condition is called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So let's just call it GSM. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is permanent and it tends to get worse over time. And the later the treatment is started, the less helpful treatments are. So it's really important that we raise this with women because 45 to 63% of postmenopausal women will report vulvovaginal symptoms and this increases to 80% of women aged 65 years and older. So if we can raise this conversation with our girlfriends so that we can talk about it to then be raised with the GP so that care can begin. Symptoms include vaginal and vulval dryness, burning and irritation, sexual symptoms such as lack of lubrication, vaginal discomfort or pain, impaired function, so of desire and arousal, and affected orgasms. So research does show that sexual symptoms are worsened around and after menopause, and this is this is also having that conversation with our partners. Urinary symptoms also include urgency to urinate and recurrent UTIs, and this is also where prolapse should be checked. The vagina changes due to reduced elasticity of the vagina, a higher vaginal pH, changes in vaginal bugs or flora, less lubrication and more susceptibility to physical irritation and trauma. So a British study in April 2019 published found that when it comes to GSM, the most common treatment was actually non-hormonal therapy applied vaginally and then hormonal therapy. So it is a conversation that women are hesitant to raise with their GP. So we, one of our purposes is also to raise that in our consults, but also that there is opportunity for change and also for relief. So if we can empower women to talk about these symptoms with their GPs, we'll start to notice a change there. So we won't go into treatment from a HRT therapy perspective. That's something that you can talk to your GP about with pessaries. But just something that I thought we could talk about was more so what you can do from a vaginal lubricant perspective with sex 
And having vaginal moisturisers that are paraben-free is going to make a difference. And making sure that you are using a lubricant that doesn't contain alcohol or antiseptics such as chlorhexidine, which can actually dry out the vagina. So dermatologists can recommend a formulated product, but making sure, like say, for example, you can use coconut oil or a healthy, pure olive oil. Um, these are unlikely to cause irritation. It is important that if you are using condoms to make sure that you are not using an oil-based lubricant and you use, say, for example, a water-based lubricant such as Yes, that's a very clean product on the market. Especially through that perimenopausal, perimenopausal. phase. When you're still might be ovulating, that's yeah, really important. Really yeah. important. <laughs> so you may not know when you're ovulating, but you still do have a chance of falling pregnant in that perimenopausal phase. So yeah. thank you. Good point. <laughs> um, and then just finally, uh, a study showed that using a vaginal moisturiser containing hyaluronic acid gel every three days does actually improve vaginal dryness, and it is comparable to estrogen therapy. Another place to also refer to would be to see an internal women's health physio so they can also support your vaginal symptoms. Great. I think that's a really important topic to talk about. Definitely. With so many women not talking about it or talking to their GPs about it, I think it's something that, like you said, we need to begin to empower these women. To talk about it. So a little project is if you can talk about it with your girlfriends at your next coffee, check in. (laughs) We can go from there. So I guess what's our what's our last message that we'd like to get across from today? So I think it's about being proactive. So if you have concerns about the health of your hormones and the symptoms you're experiencing, early intervention is best. Seek a practitioner who can guide and support you to the treatment and supplements that you need. Fantastic. And you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not All alone. women go through it. Yes, and it can be a really empowering stage. Yeah. Becoming the wise woman. The wise woman. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening.